0: All right, so who was Zechariah? How do we explain his dreams, his visions? Why shouldn't we despise the day of small things? Have you ever heard that phrase? Don't despise the day of small things? That comes from the book of Zechariah. And who is the shepherd king of Israel? We'll see. Now, let's talk about the author and date. Oh I had the wrong graphic in there. All right now that's Haggai from last week Now in the very first verse we read Zechariah one verse one somebody read this somebody who's confident with these names Jump in
1: of the Lord of
0: Very good okay so Zechariah and the name Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. Anytime you've got a Yah or like an ah at the end of a name, it's usually referring to Yahweh, uh, the, the covenant God of Israel. And the word Zakar means remember. So Yahweh remembers. Zechariah was a very common name in Israel. There are... Twenty-five people named Zechariah in the Bible, the most famous being John the Baptist's father. You remember him from the story in Luke? His name was Zechariah the priest. Same name. Now, this Zechariah is identified as the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. Who knows who Berechiah was, and who knows who Edo was? Well. Anybody? That's a trick question. Nobody knows. Okay, uh, it's just, they're not mentioned anywhere else. There's nothing else. Come on. Now, we believe that he's the same Zechariah son of Edo who's mentioned in Ezra 4.1, Ezra 6.14, and Nehemiah 12, verse 16. Sometimes they would kind of contract the family genealogy. So we think it's the same guy. Now, if so, he was a member of a priestly family who returned to Jerusalem after the exile. So he's part of the priestly families. Zechariah and Haggai, who we looked at last week, were uh, Zechariah and Haggai were con- contemporaries, both prophesying during the second year of Darius, which was 520 to 519 BC. Though Zechariah was less direct than Haggai about rebuilding the temple, both men urged the people of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So again, there's a lot of urging, rebuild the temple. What did did old Haggai say about rebuilding the temple? What was his line of argument? Anybody remember from last week? Yes, that's. You use the wood for? <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. He says, "Listen, we, you guys are rebuilding your houses, and they're looking very nice. But the old house of the Lord up here is totally neglected. You're not rebuilding it at all. So their priorities were a little bit out of whack. There, they should have at least done them both at the same time. Uh, probably they should have prioritized the temple more than anything else." All right, let's look a little bit of literary analysis and outline. Uh, Zechariah can be divided into roughly two different parts. In the first part of the book, Zechariah deals with issues that are of more uh, immediate concern to the restoration community. And then in the second part of the book, Zechariah focuses on kind of end times issues, specifically the coming of the Messiah, who he says will be the shepherd king of Israel. So again, first part of the book Directly to the rest, restoration community, a lot more of, of words to that. And then the second part, he kind of looks beyond it to the, the end times, the coming of the Messiah, the end of the world. Now, because the first and second halves of the book are so different, uh, many scholars have concluded that one author wrote chapters 1 through 8, and then perhaps a second offer, author, different author, wrote chapters 9 through 14. Now, while this is certainly possible, I think it's more likely that the prophet Zechariah wrote both parts of the book at different times in his life and for different reasons. It's complicated, but uh, some people have used sort of computer uh, analysis and studied the language and studied the themes and different things. And even though they do seem very different in terms of their subject matter, there's a lot of similarity in terms of the language that the writer uses. So it makes more sense that this is the, uh, the same writer who wrote the whole thing. The first half reflects God's word to the restoration community, as I said, while the second half looks beyond the rebuilding of the temple to a final restoration when the Messiah will restore all things. So similar theme, the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the entire world. But again, two different audiences, two different times of of life. All right. Now, with all that being said, here's a sample outline of the book, if you want to think about it. Part one is filled with oracles and visions. That's chapters one through eight. That's all the dreams, all the horsemen and the lady in the basket, and the measuring line and all that. Uh, We begin with an introduction, first six verses, introducing The author of the book, Zechariah, and some of the overarching themes that we find there. Then we have the eight night visions, which takes us all the way to chapter 6, verse 15. Then we have a section in chapter 7 and 8, from fasts to feasts. This is sort of the theme of that section. Again, early uh, part of the book. Now, in part two... We have the return of the king, which takes us from chapter 9 to chapter 14. We have the first burden, which is Zechariah's burden and God's burden for the leaders and their people. And then the second burden focuses on the people first and then their leaders. It's sort of a, a chiasm, if you will. It's sort of a AB,BA. It sort of goes along that line there. All right, so let's talk about some of these visions The first night vision is the Lord's hidden horsemen. Now, what's interesting is I was talking to Pastor Dave about this, and he made the same error that I made when I was thinking about it, that it was the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, that actually comes from the book of Revelation, and that's a thing in the Bible. But in Zechariah, it's not specified how many horsemen there are. There are a couple of different colors of the horses, but it's not the exact same thing. But that's, when you're looking for pictures of the prophet Zechariah on Google image search, you gotta go with what they give you. Okay, now the first night vision addresses the problem of what we call unrealized eschatology. Israelites had experienced God's judgment while the Gentiles were at rest. Who knows what the word eschatology means? Someone who is not a professor at a seminary. End times, uh, the eschaton, the last times, the end things. And so what he's talking about here is unrealized eschatology. Now, what would that mean? If the eschatology is the study of end times, why would it be unrealized? Hasn't happened yet. What's going to happen and what specifically hasn't happened yet that they're worried about? Final judgment on the nations, the coming of the king. What happened was they're back in Jerusalem. They're thinking, this is it. The exile is over. Now we can rest. Now we can expect the ushering in of the final times and the glory and the peace. But it didn't happen yet. And so the people are saying, well, wait a minute. I thought this was supposed to be the thing that we were waiting for. The end of the exile. But it hasn't happened yet. And so Zechariah gets this vision. An angel on a red horse appears to Zechariah and appeals to God on behalf of Judah. Why might the angel have appeared on a red horse? Anybody know? I don't know, so that's why I'm asking you. I don't know. Any thoughts? Red horse? I don't know. I have always wondered about the colors of all these horses. The red horse. Maybe we'll ask God when we, or Zechariah when we get to heaven. Who knows? Now, the angel assures Zechariah that God will, in fact, judge the nations and he will have mercy on his people. Somebody read Zechariah 1, verse 17, either from your Bible or from the screen.
1: Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities shall again overflow with prosperity,
0: and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Good. So that word of that unrealized or underrealized eschatology will be realized, and Zechariah is assured of this. Now, who, what's the identification in the first part of that verse, that first phrase? The Lord is called what? We talked about this last week. Yahweh. Yep, Yahweh what? Sabaoth. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. Again, I just point that out to you because oftentimes the prophets will use that phrase when they want to highlight the power of God and the sovereignty of God and the fact that God is in control of seemingly out-of-control situations. He'll use that phrase. So just be on the lookout for it as you read. All right, second night vision. Four horns, not this kind, and four craftsmen. In the second night vision, Zechariah sees four horns. He asks who they are and... Uh, The same angel from the first vision says these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now whether these horns refer to specific nations as they do in the book of Daniel, they refer to different nations, or whether they refer to the enemies of God from the four corners of the earth or from the four winds of heaven, the point is that the four craftsmen in the dream will destroy them. Presumably with tools that they bought at Sears. Hey, come on, please. I'm trying my best here. The third night vision, the man with a measuring line. In the third night vision, Zechariah sees a man with a measuring line. Zechariah asks who he is and what he's doing. And the man says that he's measuring Jerusalem for a new wall, a wall that is made of fire because god is jerusalem's protector the city will be a city without walls because god will be to her a wall of fire all around and i will be the glory in her midst now why might that be a significant vision or a comforting vision for old zechariah and the people of israel why is that comforting Mm-hmm. The temple, they met all kinds of and all kinds of plots to stop them. And the wall had been torn down. The wall had been torn down? And had the wall been rebuilt yet? No. No, no. no. So right now, it, it's, um, I don't know, like it's like a, like a nation without borders. You know, a city without walls. There's no protection from anything. Or, you know, imagine living in a house with no front door. You know, it's like, just anyone in the world could just kind of walk in there, you know, you, it, or you maybe hung a sheet in front of the door. It would be not the greatest feeling when you went to bed at night, knowing you're kind of exposed to the world, where their, their whole city was exposed to the world. As Cheryl said, a very violent world. Uh, people, you know, nations and raiders and tribes were always coming against the Israelites. And so Zechariah has a vision where God says, I'm, you're going to be a city without walls in the sense that I'm going to put a wall of fire around the city. So it'll be impregnable. Good point, Frank. Yeah, the walls, man-made walls, and in fact the walls that, you know, Ezra, that Nehemiah would build later on were not permanent. They literally were not permanent. In 70 AD, uh, the temple was destroyed and the Romans kind of sacked the city again. And so that human protection from the enemies of God and from the problems of life and the world are limited. Uh, but God's protection from the Lord of hosts is unlimited. So, yes. Yeah, that's a good point. We talked about that a little bit last week with, with old Haggai, that the glory of God, which descended upon Solomon's temple, never came back. But he says, I'm going to be the glory in your midst. So if the glory that came down on Solomon's temple never came back on this new temple, how, how did God fulfill that promise? Yeah, I think John 1, 14. What does that say? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Mm -hmm. So God sends His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to literally tabernacle among us. To be present with us and we behold his glory, the glory of God through Jesus. Who, according to, to the book of John, said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And everyone said, well, it's taken us years to build this temple. What are you, what are you talking about? And then John puts a beautiful little parenthetical phrase in there. He says, but the temple he was talking about was his body. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, now let's look at the fourth night vision, the high priest's dirty clothes. (laughs) In the fourth night vision, Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest, clothed in filthy garments. Satan, the accuser or the prosecutor, is there to accuse him, but the Lord rebukes him. Somebody read chapter 3, verse 2. Isn't that beautiful language, beautiful imagery? Do you know that story about Joshua the high priest? He's clothed in filthy garments. Satan is accusing him, and the Lord himself silences the accuser. Clothes him in clean clothes. Isn't this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, put on your theology cap there. What doctrine would that convey of Joshua's in filthy clothes. God takes the filthy clothes off of him and puts clean clothes back on him. What theological concept or, or word might describe what happened there? The imputation. Yeah, imputation. In other words, uh, he receives in a very literal visionary form the imputation of a foreign or alien or other righteousness. So righteousness that does not belong to him is imputed to him or given to him and then he is clothed in a righteousness that is not his own. So again, that's going to be very uh, important especially when you think about 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul tells us God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's that sort of Uh, double imputation language. Okay. The Lord then removes Joshua's dirty clothes, gives him new clean clothing. Verse 4 we read, And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. So again, makes it very explicit that this is not just about clothing, dirty clothing. It's about his heart. It's about his life. It's about his sin. And that's taken away. All right. uh, Fifth night vision the menorah and the olive trees. In the fifth night vision, Zechariah sees a menorah between two olive trees. Each of the seven lamps has seven wicks, giving us a total of 49 candles. Now, seven is the number in the Bible and in apocalyptic literature that refers to perfection. Think about the seven days of the week. God rested the seventh day. Uh, Now, that number multiplied by 7 equals 49. So it's sort of a perfection of a perfection. Does that make sense? The olive trees provide constant oil for the lamp, the implication being that God isn't dependent upon human priests in order to light the lamps in the temple. God himself will provide the oil uh, from the, the temple, oil that never runs out. Now, those of you who are reading your chronological Bible, does that remind you of a story that you have recently read in your daily Bible reading? Yeah, the, remember the widow of Zarephath? She has oil in a jar, and the oil never runs out. Now, this is more cooking oil versus lamp lighting oil, but again, the same principle holds. All right. Now, yes.
1: Mm-hmm. that's really profound because sometimes we just don't feel like we have it in us to pray, but the Lord provides even the prayer. I think, you know, that, mm-hmm. like that, that sense that he, he's, he's the oil for the
0: lamps. Mm-hmm. That's really yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Did, you, did y'all hear that? That the, um, the candles often represented the prayers of the people. And so, uh, often, we do not know how we should pray as we ought. But the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with a groaning that is deeper than words. And so God even fuels our prayers when we feel like we don't know, how, don't know what to pray. You know, we have this horribly complicated web of a problem and all we can pray is, Lord, un- unravel this web. And we don't know how to do it. And so we're asking God to do it. So he supplies the answers and the prayers themselves, even when we have nothing. All right. Though the new temple was smaller than Solomon's temple, God tells the people not to despise the day of small things. The two trees are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. We don't know exactly who that refers to. The most likely candidates are Zerubbabel and Joshua. Who? Tell me who those two guys were. Who's Arubabel? He was, the governor at the time. he was the governor at the time. He brought the people back, the restoration community. Uh, who's Joshua? <coughs> Hint, we just talked about him. He's the, high priest. He's the high priest. Or it could possibly be Haggai and Zechariah, who were these two kind of twin prophets who were prophesying at the same time. Again, it's not entirely clear, but, but that's our best guess. Okay, sixth night vision, we have come to the flying scroll, (laughs) not squirrel. I don't know why I always think of flying squirrel when I think of that. Maybe I watched too much Rocky and Bullwinkle when I was a kid. In the sixth night vision, Zechariah sees a flying scroll, not a squirrel. The scroll represents the law of God, and God promises to punish lawbreakers in the vision. He specifically singles out everyone who steals and everyone who swears falsely. Somebody read chapter 5, verse 4. Now again, it's not entirely clear why he he singles out these two things. Um, My guess is, if I had to guess, it sort of represents the first table of the law and the second table of the law. Uh, The one who swears falsely by my name has violated the first uh, table of the law, which deals with man and our relationship, human beings our relationship with God, while the second half, stealing represents uh, human beings in our relationship with each other that's my guess but i don't know for sure all right seventh night vision the lady in the basket in the seventh night vision zechariah sees a basket that represents the sins of the people somebody read chapter 5 verses 7 and 8 Okay, so it's, uh, it's, a, it, it, that's, it's a strange vision there. After this happened, two women with wings picked up the basket and took it to Babylon, which is, as I noted, good for Israel, but not for Babylon. You see, so all the accumulated sins of all the people are taken away and, and uh, delivered to Babylon. All right, the eighth night vision, last one, four chariots. In the eighth night vision, Zechariah sees four chariots that represent the four winds of heaven. Remember we talked about them earlier. Each chariot goes to a different direction, north, south, east, and west. The chariots represent the power of God, which is universal in scope. The final chariot goes to the north country, to Babylon, symbolizing the final defeat of the nation that destroyed Jerusalem and carried the people into exile. Does that make sense? So all the chariots of God are traveling to the whole world, and kind of the ultimate one is going against Babylon, who mainly oppressed the people of Israel at this time. Uh, Where else in the Bible do you remember a story about God and his chariots? Does anybody remember another story about God and his chariots in the Bible? It's one of my favorite stories. That's why I bring it up. Am I hearing some people? But I'm not hearing anything. So speak it up loud. Elisha. Yeah, it's the story of Elisha. You remember the story where Elisha is up on the uh, the hill with his servant, and uh, they're surrounded. And Elisha says, "Lord, open his eyes." And he opens his eyes, and he sees, and he sees chariots of fire surrounding them on the mountain. That's such a cool story. Elijah was, his uh, was before Elisha, was also taken up into heaven in chariots of fire. So that's another one. Good, good, good. I told that story to the nurses at the health clinic the other day, uh, the Elisha story, and a lot of them never heard it before. And so I think they're pretty encouraged by that. I, I love that story. All right, now the second half of the book, chapters 9 through 14, is about the return of the king. Now, I just want us to go through some of these prophecies, and let's try to see how those prophecies align with the life and ministry of Jesus. Okay, somebody read Zechariah 9, verse 9. All right, uh, did Jesus ever enter Jerusalem humble and mounted on a donkey on the colt uh, on a colt of a donkey, yes. full of a donkey? Yes. When did that happen? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, very specific fulfillment of this passage. Now, who was Jesus according to Zechariah's prophecy, and what did Jesus come to bring to the people? Who was he? and what did he come to bring? He's the king, He's the king right? Uh, what did he come to bring? Salvation. Salvation. Now that term is more than just kind of a victory, you know, more than hey, I'm going to I'm going to be a great king and I'm going to sort of restore what David did. He's talking about something much more. He's talking about the forgiveness of sins. He's talking about that kind of global shalom that Fullness, that wholeness, that's what this king is going to bring, and that's what Jesus did when he rode into Jerusalem on humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the full of a donkey. All right, somebody read Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. Then I said to them, Now, did someone in the Passion narrative receive 30 pieces of silver? Who received it? Why did he receive it? And what happened to him in a potter's field? Who, who, who received that money? Judas. Judas. Judas Iscariot. There's another Judas who's kind of always bummed out that people confuse the two. Okay. Uh, Judas Iscariot. Uh, 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus, and then kind of what happened to him? Potter's field. Yeah, he died there. Well, first he kind of took the 30 pieces of silver, he threw it down in the temple, uh, tried to give it back. They wouldn't take it back, uh, hanged himself, buried him in a potter's field. So, again, that was, that was the price of the Lord for Judas Iscariot. 30 pieces of silver. Very tr- tragic. All right. Somebody read Zechariah twelve, verse ten. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. All right. Talk to me about some of the ways that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. How did he die? How did people react? There's a lot in there. How did Jesus fulfill this? First of
1: all, it was in Jerusalem.
0: Yep, in Jerusalem.
1: Jerusalem.
0: Say again. He wept for Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yep. And they wept for him, his disciples did, when when he died. Full of grace, mm-hmm. full of grace and truth. John three seventeen. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Grace. He was
1: pierced.
0: He was pierced on the cross. As hands and feet, nails were driven through. Uh, they pierced His side with a spear. And again, that's a. That's a, we kind of take it for granted because we're used to the story about Jesus dying on the cross. But look at what He says. He says. Um, the Lord is saying they will look on, uh, where am I looking, reading here, Um, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. So it's the Lord who is pierced. Again, uh, if you're an Old Testament person, that's got to be completely confusing to you because how could the Lord be pierced? The Lord didn't even have a body in the Old Testament. You know, we see the Lord in a burning bush. We see him uh, in a cloud of fire. Um, he's so holy that Moses can't even look at him. He sometimes appears as the angel of the Lord, but even then, there's no sense in which Yahweh could have a body that could be pierced. And yet, with the coming of Jesus, we have the Son of God, the Lord, Yahweh. Who takes on a human nature so that he can be pierced? Incredible, and all of this is hundreds of years, you know, before the actual birth of Jesus Christ—five hundred and twenty years at least.
1: Jesus was also firstborn, as one weeps over firstborn.
0: Yep, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Good. And he tells the women,
1: "Don't weep for me; weep for your children."
0: hmm mm-hmm. Yeah, don't weep for me; weep for your children. Again, yeah, good. Good insight. Anything else?
1: He's at the house of David.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wasn't. So I'm not. I haven't been counting. What are we up to? Like eight prophecies that that uh, Jesus fulfills of these two ver. These uh, well, really one verse. Incredible. Incredible.
1: He was also an only child in the sense that he was God's only
0: son. Mm-hmm. Only begotten Son of the Father. Mm-hmm. Good. All right. Let's read Zechariah three.
1: 13 verse 7. Awake O sword against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones.
0: So what does shepherding have to do with Jesus? Was Jesus struck? If so, what happened to his disciples? How does Jesus fulfill this prophecy? And again, remember, we're in the second half of the book. Which is talking about the coming king. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: the sheep
0: yeah, who scattered? The yeah, all the disciples. Yeah. <laughs> they they all ran away. Uh, who was it? I think it was uh, was it John who ran away so fast? They grabbed his cloak from him and he ran off naked. Yeah, John Mark. Yeah, John Mark. So, you know, it's uh, yeah they all they all ran away. What else? Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. What's that have to do with Jesus? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd
1: who mm-hmm. lays down my life for the sheep.
0: Yeah, John, the book of John. I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. And even in Ezekiel, there's that promise of the Lord himself and shepherding his people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the book of Ezekiel talks about the Lord shepherding his people. That's a that's a you know pretty... Consistent uh, metaphor and a word picture throughout the Old Testament. You know, Psalm 23: "The Lord is my shepherd." You know that there's that constant shepherding uh, imagery. The prophet Amos was a shepherd. Again, it's all all part of there. Okay, um, let me. I'm going to close with this quote, and then we'll maybe do some questions if you want to. This is from uh, Ray Dillard and Tremper Longman. They write this. Uh, Christian readers of this prophet cannot but notice that the coming age of full redemption is inaugurated by a messianic king who makes a humble appearance, bringing righteousness and salvation to Jerusalem while riding on a donkey. I'm not going to read all the passages, but you can see them up there. He is the shepherd king, but a smitten shepherd, pierced, and betrayed, but it is this king who will subdue nations and establish his kingdom among men. Okay, any questions about the book of Zechariah? I finished a little bit early, but any turned, questions?
1: And they turned the world upside down for Christ.
0: Yes, they turned the world upside down for Christ. Cheryl? That's a good point. And we oftentimes look for some of the same things that the Israelites look for in terms of anchoring our hope on um, on a president or on political candidates or on uh, wealth. Yeah, if we just build bigger church buildings or maybe if we can have more influence on the, on the culture in some way, then we'll be protected. Where the emphasis seems to be, yeah, the Lord God will protect you. He will build a fire around you. So the most important thing is focus on the temple. Focus on the Lord. Focus on His sovereignty and on His promises. And it's not wrong, you know, of course in our system we vote and it's not wrong to save for the future. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying where are you putting your trust? What, what is your ultimate source of protection? Who are you looking to to kind of give you that that king, you know, who really will, will deliver you. Who's
1: never going to be destroyed. I mean, all those imagery is where victory, 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 mm-hmm. you know. The weak, sometimes we fight too much against flesh and blood and forget the warfare it is
0: more spiritual. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll never look at Bob Vila the same way again. <laughs> the craftsman, the craftsman. Any other thoughts? All right, guys, well, we're going to renew again next week for the final book in the Old Testament, uh, which is Malachi. So we'll, we'll look forward to that next week. Why don't we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, our shepherd king. We thank you, Lord, for his suffering and death in our place. We thank you that we have been clothed in your righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own. We thank you that you have plucked us from the fire the fire of judgment, the fire of hell, that we might be living and breathing ambassadors of your kingdom in this world. Lord, uh, these things are just far too remarkable for us, and but we thank you for the book of Zechariah, which gives us uh, hope and confidence in your plan to eventually, someday, make all things new. Until that day, may we not lose heart, but may we fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at your right hand, O Lord God of our salvation. Hear our prayer. We pray in his name. Amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you in worship and then back here next week.